This is Under Understood. Hey, everyone. Hey, Tran. Hey. Hey. We got an email from a listener, and I called dibs on it, but I think everyone read it anyway. Sorry. Does someone want to read this email? Here it is. A website contact form message from Jess. That's the one. Why does Thomson Reuters Newswire say blah, blah, blah? Reuters 21578, with a link, is a data set containing Reuters Newswire items, short businessy headlines and descriptions from 1987. It's very popular for machine learning research because it's extensive and well-labeled. For some reason, some articles in the data set have article bodies containing only the words blah, blah, blah. (laughs) How did this happen? Was it in the Reuters database? Or did the academics they worked with introduce it? Why blah, 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 instead of just leaving the article body blank? Hmm. (laughs) I am very into this because I love machine learning training data sets. It's like this essential (laughs) distillation of humans and computers trying to communicate with each other. And (laughs) I just think it's really lovely. So I wrote about this back at the outline. And uh, I'm just going to read from this story, which is from 2017. So... I'm going to quote myself here. Nice. Quote, As machine learning research accelerates, scientists have started pooling their resources. ImageNet is a popular dataset produced by researchers at Stanford and Princeton that contains 14 million images grouped by nouns in synonym sets, such as kid, comma, child, woman, comma, adult, female, office, comma, business office. So ImageNet is one of these many publicly available data sets made by corporations and researchers and released for free online for others to use in training algorithms. Training for what? To train machine learning algorithms. So this is like what would end up in an app like a face tuning app or language translation. Anything that um, involves using a lot of data to try to emulate some kind of more human-like function with an algorithm. It's like someone who says kid might actually mean child or might also mean child. Exactly. And also associate that with the image. So you're just trying to teach a computer like basic ass shit that people learn by the time they're five. (laughs) (laughs) Dumb computer. Yeah. (laughs) What idiots. (laughs) This can be done for basically any type of data as long as you can get a whole lot of them and label it somehow consistently. Hmm. So these data sets are all called corpuses, and there are tons of them. The data set that Jess emailed about is a relatively small one by today's standards. Mm -hmm. It is a text corpus, and it's called Reuters 21578. Rolls off the tongue. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's 21,578 Reuters articles. So it's also a very creative title. Yes. And these articles are labeled with topics. So those topics might be financial or economic, like mergers and acquisitions or interest rates. Or they might be labeled with a proper noun, like a person or a country or a region. And this data set is available for free online. And how do you, how do you access this? The place that Jess was looking at was UCI, um, University of California, Irvine has a machine learning repository that has a bunch of data sets. Okay. She said that she was downloading this data set not for her job, but for a personal project. Uh, I'm actually a designer. I work with data, but I'm a designer. And I wanted a cool news data set uh, that I could use. I liked the retro quality. 
started going into it in a little bit more detail and found all these amazing uh, instances where the entire article body of certain things was just the phrase blah, blah, blah. And knowing that Reuters is a very, um, <laughs> a company with a lot of journalistic, yeah, very straight laced, lots of journalistic integrity. I couldn't see that as being like intentional in, in any sense in the journalist news sense. Jess is actually pretty qualified to say what a Reuters employee might do or not do because she happens to be a Reuters employee. Oh. However, she's in a different department and she was very clear that she has, unfortunately, no ability to help us get this answer institutionally. <laughs> what do you mean? Interesting. Put up a uh, bulletin in the cafeteria. Jess looked through the data set and found 1,605 articles with blah, blah, blah in the body. It always seems to be the full blah, blah, blah. It's blah, 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 with the first B being capitalized and a period at the very end. So it's punctuated. It's not just for what it's worth. It is like a proper blah, blah, blah. It's a statement in and of itself. Very in intentional. Yes, yes. Looking. Mm -hmm. This is a pretty solid little data set. It is in... 7,600 papers on Google Scholar. And do the Google Scholar papers mention the blah, blah, blahs? Yeah, a couple of them do. So if you search Reuters 21578 and blah in Google Scholar, you get 35 results. One paper is talking about the limits of the data set and says, this collection is also disputed in reason of the famous blah, blah, blah. Another says, quote, of course, we have omitted the body text, having only blah, blah, blah like sentences. Another paper refers to, quote, dubious documents containing just the words blah, blah, blah in the body. And then one paper speculates that blah, blah, blah was inserted deliberately by the dataset's creators as, quote, noise to, quote, test the tolerance of classification algorithms. There's no evidence for this theory or for any other theory at this point, but this theory thing, this quirk of this data set is definitely out there. Like anybody who looks closely at the data is aware of this phenomenon. It's a mystery that's been boggling minds for 30 something years now. I would just like to note that there was an Iggy Pop album named Blah 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 that came <laughs> out in October 1986 Ooh. and was released on cassette in 1987. But what was the capitalization and punctuation like? Ah, uh, it's album? actually different. It's, it's they're, mm. they're all capitalized and there's dashes between them. Hmm, not the same. Yeah, it kills that theory. Yeah, no. Okay. Yep. These articles were labeled in the data as type equals brief, suggesting that they were like news alerts or headlines that were sent out for a developing story where the body was filled in later. Or maybe it's just the headline and that's the whole thing. Right. But if the whole thing is just the headline, why would they type in blah, blah, blah? Right. Wouldn't it be story developing? Right. Ellipsis. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. Okay. I'm going to send you all a sample of the data. So this is what the type equals brief articles look like. The longer articles will also have a dateline 
with the date and location and an actual body. I just put this into Slack. Do, do any of these tags even close? It's weird. It's like, um, it's it looks a little bit like HTML, but it's not HTML. This is SGML. Oh, what's that? Standard generalized markup language. Oh. It's a document markup language. Originally designed to enable the sharing of machine-readable large project documents. So I guess if you're listening to this uh, on a podcast player where you can see the show notes, look for a link to this because it <laughs> it is illustrative and I don't really know how to convey this. Can you explain what you're looking at? So we see this title tag. So inside the title tag, you see the title of an article. And then that title tag gets closed like an HTML tag would be closed. So it's structured like HTML where there are tags and inside those tags is content. But the blah, blah, blah sits outside of those tags. It's it's not enclosed by anything. I see what you mean about these not being formatted The rest, like the rest of it is. It's in a weird spot. I don't know. I feel like it has to have served a purpose. Like I really just want to know what the purpose was. Yes. Yeah. Well, a bunch of people worked on this data set. A lot of them are on LinkedIn. So I'm going to see how many of them I can track down. I think you can do it. Thank you, John, for your vote of confidence. Coming up, Adrian does some research, asks some questions, blah, blah, blah. I'm back. Hey. 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 Welcome back. <laughs> I'm back from field reporting on LinkedIn. Wow. Did, did you have a hard time getting people to respond to you when you reached out with the subject line, blah, blah, blah? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah, funny I enough. would imagine. It was podcast query, blah, blah, blah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I did get a surprising number of people responding. People who worked on this in the 80s. People who worked on this in the 80s, yeah. Wow. Well, let's wow. let's get into the data set sausage making. Okay. <laughs> My favorite kind of sausage making. It's the 80s. You can put some 80s music in here, maybe. Pew, 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 pew. That what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what? Those are the sounds of synthesizers. <laughs> it's like a little kid using a phaser. Reuters is sending out a huge volume of news. Subscribers are wanting to get updated on specific topics or specific regions or companies. So Reuters editors would manually add topics to each story as it came across their desk. And Reuters decided to automate this. In the 80s? Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> and a few years later, this data set pops up on the internet. It turns out it took a lot of people to make Reuters 21578 happen. And in the case of the blah, blah, blahs, I have basically three different groups of suspects. So first up is Reuters. Someone there could have put blah, blah, blah into their actual feed of stories, maybe in some kind of invisible way on the back end. Then there was another group that came in later to clean up the data and publish it for academic use, and it could have been them. But before it got to the internet, Reuters 21578 was in the hands of the Carnegie Group, an AI startup that Reuters contracted with to build this system of news article classification. 
at the time that this data set uh, was collected, I was I was a programmer. I was fresh out of school, you know, just a few years. Um, and uh, this was actually my first company. So I didn't really have a sense of, you know, the ways of the world or anything like that. That's Monica Cellio. She was a programmer at Carnegie Group, and she worked on the system that relied on this data set. And the system was called Construe. I actually saw these rooms where they had rooms full of people whose job was to, you know, receive a story from a wire and in just a few seconds, scan it, attach tags to it and send it back out. Um, So this was what we were trying to automate, um, at least, you know, the 90% that could be automated. So, uh, so we were working on that, which meant we needed uh, a we needed a pile of data to work with, um, and we needed to consult. You know, we needed access to their experts. You know, how do you make decisions about how you categorize this stuff? So, uh, we actually had one of their categorizers working on site with us as we were developing the rules that the software would use and figuring out the edge cases. Unfortunately, Monica did not remember anything about the blah blah blahs. The person who alerted me to this sent me some XML showing what these blah, blah, blah records look like. Yeah. And they look like a mistake. They do. They are in the wrong place. And let me actually pull one up here. Uh, Just a second. Open this folder again. Yeah, they are after... Okay, so let's see. So we've got a text block that contains a title block, and the blah, blah, blah shows up after the title. Um, I guess, let me find one that doesn't have the blah, blah, blah. So yeah, the ones that don't have blah, 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 after the title, you have a dateline block and then a body block. And the ones that have blah, blah, blah are missing the dateline and the body. And they just say blah, blah, blah instead, which is weird. So Monica didn't remember anything, but at least she was excited about this mystery. If, if you publish something, please please let me know. Send me a link. Uh, and good luck. And if you get the answer to the blah, 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 I want to know now. <laughs> she suggested I talk to one of the linguists who worked on the Construe project. So I called Peggy Anderson. I had to actually go look up what... Reuters to what five seven eight whatever it is, what that was and oh really, yeah because I, I I wasn't really aware of what happened to it after I finished working on it. Mm-hmm. It'd be weird if she remembered that specific one. That, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was infamous. <laughs> I mean, the whole um, mission of the company was to apply artificial intelligence, such as it was back then in the 80s, um, to commercial problems. So um, Reuters contracted with us to automate tagging their news stories so that their users could find the stories that were of interest to them. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem was that reporters don't always use consistent language. So we had to discover the language that they used in their natural reporting. Today, you would do this with statistics. Today, you would have your program look at all of this data and then find patterns in it on its own, right? But back then, they didn't have the computing power to do it that way, so they did what was called knowledge-based categorization. Mm-hmm. 
What's that mean? They were writing rules. So they have to come up with these rules on their own and then mm-hmm. add them. Yeah. We actually had humans, me and other um, linguists on the project, um, studying the words that were used and and creating rules, you know, that, that would say, so grain, you know, grains are also traded and wheat and different grains, but you'd have, to, you could say grain, but if you allowed every single story that had the word grain in it, you'd get some things that were not about um, grains that are traded. That could be about grain alcohol or, you know, um, the fine grain of wood or, you mm-hmm. know, something like that. Did you realize that this data would be publicly released? No. No, it was it was really strictly, it wasn't, it wasn't, we weren't, our goal wasn't to create data. It was to put tags in real time on news stories so that Reuters readers could find what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Some of the records have just a title and then no dateline, no body, and it just says blah, blah, blah. Like mm-hmm. capitalized blah, <laughs> lowercase blah, lowercase <laughs> blah, period. Huh. Um, I can't explain that. No. Do you remember <laughs> seeing that? No. No. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I worked with software engineers. They, they're a um, special breed of people. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. and the, <laughs> the people at Carnegie Group um, were really some of the smartest people I've ever known. You know, most of them graduates of Carnegie Mellon, and um, but but also playful, and you know they did some crazy things. It could have been introduced then. It could have been introduced later on by these people who managed the corpus. You know, once it was released to um, for public use, I don't. I really don't know. Do you think it's possible that it was in the original data from Reuters? Um. I don't know. I really don't know. That seems unlikely to me. I explained that we had a listener who had requested this information. I mean, why is it? Why does this person care at this point? Honestly, I think they were curious because they they thought they work at Reuters and they were like, Reuters would never put this in any of its own stuff yeah. because Reuters is so, you know, grown up. Right. Yes, exactly. It probably was not. Mm. Didn't from writers. Peggy's only theory was that it might have been an issue where the test program could not accept stories that didn't have bodies. If you if you find out, I'd love to know the answer. <laughs> okay, see now you're curious too. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So Monica and Peggy both told me that they did not realize that this data set was going to be published, which makes sense because Reuters built it for a competitive advantage to sell a product to customers. So I started to wonder how this even got into the world. Let's do it. Dave Lewis is credited as the source of the data in the UCI machine learning repositories. So I figured I should talk to him. So uh, I was a graduate student in computer science at at University of Massachusetts, working with Bruce Croft. 
And uh, Bruce called me into his office one day and said, you know, look at this. And it was a, a newsletter from a company called Carnegie Group, which was a, a AI startup back during the second AI bubble. They uh, had a graph on the front page of this newsletter, which was uh, purportedly comparing an expert system they'd built with uh, statistical text retrieval systems, which is what Bruce and I worked on. And, you know, we were, you know, pretty upset about this because it was comparing, you know, apples and oranges. So Dave is saying that Construe, which is Carnegie's system, was being compared with something that his group had done in the past. And Carnegie Group was basically bragging about how well Construe had performed versus these other methods. So Dave and his advisor thought this wasn't a fair comparison. There was a lot of debate going on between uh, whether one should use knowledge-based systems for information retrieval or statistical uh, machine learning systems for information retrieval. And, you know, Bruce and I were mostly on the statistical and machine learning side that we both we both dabbled in the other. Uh, so anyway, you know, we thought this was kind of unfair and it was sort of, you know, in, in the moment it was a... Um, a kind of debate that was going on. Dave's advisor reached out to Carnegie Group and got in touch with this guy, Phil Hayes. And Phil Hayes was extremely chill. He said, why don't I give you this data set and you can work on it and do experiments using your different methods. And he sent it to us. And so I ended up using that uh, in my dissertation. It was actually the, the central data set that I used in doing experimentation on, on machine learning and, and natural language processing uh, for text categorization. How did this data set become public? Well, yeah, that was sort of accidental. Um, you know, com- I, I would say I and many computer scientists were probably a little more careless around IP issues back in those days, intellectual property mm-hmm. issues. I don't think there was ever any formal document between Carnegie Group and UMass. So I kind of carried the data set along with me. I, I did a uh, research faculty position at University of Chicago, and then I was at Bell Labs. I was collaborating with a bunch of people, and I just had the data up on an open FTP site. Oh, my God. <gasps> so Dave had the data up on an open FTP site, which is just a way to easily send large files, and it didn't even occur to him to put a password on it. Oh, wow. So <laughs> anybody on the Internet could access this. Mm-hmm. This was the wild, wild west back then. <laughs> People traded around FTP sites in those days, you know, with data sets pretty casually. And I had, you know, talked to Carnegie Group and, you know, Carnegie Group was looking into releasing it. And, you know, we talked about we'll do some sort of um, public announcement or, or maybe put it at the Linguistic Data Consortium, which was just starting up back then. Uh, but what happened basically was it just sort of diffused out there and started showing up in other papers. Dave wanted to be very clear that he would never do this today. And, and I will say that I've, uh, it, it is sort of funny because, you know, over my career, I ended up later in life working a lot with lawyers and doing expert witness work and building legal software and things. And um, I've become much more fussy about intellectual property issues. I work for a cybersecurity company now, too. So I should say that I'm now very, very fussy about these (laughs) things if anybody's listening here. Okay. (laughs) You would put a password on it today. I would put it. Yeah, right. Well, today there'd be like a 17 page legal agreement that's been signed off by general counsels and things. It's the 80s, you know? Yeah. Well, it also fits with the the culture of 
open source software and 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 people developing this stuff like wanting to be able to share things and have them work across different companies uh, when they move or with other people they're collaborating with. So it like makes sense. It just seems like they didn't have any formalized way to either say like, oh, one company owns this or yes, this is this is under an open license. Wild Wild West. Dave actually ended up collaborating with Reuters. Reuters began to began to notice that these computer scientists were all using this weird thing they were calling the Reuters data set, which nobody at Reuters seemed to know where it had come from or how. So anyway, they decided that, you know, uh, to their credit, they wanted a good, if there was going to be a Reuters data set out there, they wanted, and, and, and they also saw themselves as benefiting from people working with their data. They decided they would put a good data set out there. Reuters published a new data set called RCV1. This data set was much larger. It had about 800,000 documents. And it's held at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. But for this data set, you can't just download it. You have to submit a request to NIST, and then you have to agree to a bunch of terms and conditions for how you're going to use the data. Dave was able to negotiate with Reuters to release a version of the data, but it wasn't quite like Reuters 21578. The public data set did not include the article text, like, in the way it would have appeared originally. I couldn't release just the actual documents that somebody could read as if they were news, but Reuters was okay with releasing, like, the set of words that occurred in the documents if they'd been scrambled in order, which is fine for many machine. It's not good for natural language processing, but it's fine for, for many machine learning tasks. I don't really understand difference between those two things? Like, why would it be okay for one and not for the other? I think it's not good for natural language processing because it's not in natural language, right? Like, if you were trying to teach a computer what a normal sentence sounds like and maybe generate its own sentences that sound normal, it's not going to be helpful for it to look at a word list. But if you were trying mm -hmm. to teach a computer just, like, what words are associated with other words in these articles, then it would be fine if they're out of order. Wait, the thing I'm still confused about is, so if they did this thing where they're like, okay, yes, we can make this publicly available, but you have to scramble things, then why is the original one still available? Well, it's still useful, and also they have no control over it at this point. I mean, they could go around DMCAing everybody. So the original, but the original one isn't officially available from them. It's just in all of these other places now. Yeah. I asked Dave about the blah, blah, blahs in Reuters 21578. Big surprise, he didn't know why they were there. But he was able to establish that he did not put them in. They were in the data before it got to him. And so why didn't you take out the blah, blah, blahs at this point? We did our best not to mess with the raw data, with the text, um, even when it seemed like there were errors or weird things in there. because. You know, we viewed ourselves as cleaning up the formatting and the metadata, not changing the original data. Uh, so just, you know, we weren't sure where that came from. My, my guess was it was kind of a filler. So at this point, it's like nobody from Carnegie Group remembers this. Dave remembers it being in there and says he wasn't the one who added it. So 
I felt like the next person I needed to talk to would be somebody from Reuters. Well, in 1986, um, I was working at Reuters and Mm -hmm. we were doing some experimental work in artificial intelligence. So this is Steven Weinstein. He worked at Reuters on the editorial side and then ended up working on this project, which at the time was called the Construe Topic Identification System. How cutting edge was this at the time? It had never been done before. So pretty cutting edge. Um, I'd say bleeding cutting edge, yes. Wow. Stephen told me he gets messages every so often about this data set, and he even gets messages about the blah, blah, blah thing. It's been coming up every handful of years, uh, you know, for decades now. So it's fun to think that these things live on in perpetuity. He told me that when people ask him about the blah, blah, blah thing, he usually um, ignores them. But I was so persistent that (laughs) he called Peggy Anderson, who I spoke with before, to try Mm -hmm. to dislodge this from their collective memory we think that the answer is there were that, that the way the system worked is it evaluated the text of the story not the headline and one of the things that we did in back in in that time in order to get news quickly out onto the newswire was sometimes we would publish the headline first we'd call it a flash or a bulletin and we just put the headline out and so there was a headline with no body to the text and that would mess up the system when the system went to try to evaluate what the what was going on in the body of the text in order to categorize it or later on do some other things with it. And since the system couldn't process no data and come up with a reliable response, a little, we believe, Peggy and I agree on this, that a little program was written that for items that didn't have any text, we would just have the data set be updated to include blah, 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 just as something there that we could key off of if we needed to identify those stories. So we think that's what the blah, blah, blah was. I see. So you you don't actually remember doing this, but you think after talking it over with Peggy that that's what happened. Well, Peggy and I had the same recollection about it. Okay. I don't, I don't think we constructed it together. I think we both had the same memory of that's how that came about. And, and, it was in the data set that we were using for testing. It was never in the um, feed that Reuters put out or the data that went into the database. Steven's story is that this was a hack, a temporary workaround. Reuters was sending out stories separated by these control characters that would indicate where stories started and stopped. And these were things like ampersand, pound, two, semicolon. The other markup, that SGML, was added by the Carnegie Group. At first, Stevens' group thought that the body of an article would be more important than the headline for categorization, and that later changed. But the way he remembers it, during this one period, the system was looking for a headline, skipping the headline, and then attempting to process whatever text came immediately after that closed title tag. And so stories that had nothing there after the title tag ended would cause the code to break. So the system could look at blah, blah, blah and say, okay, there's some text there that I'm deciding not to evaluate rather than no text and breaking. 
And then, so that was done while you were testing, but at some point you would have to, like that couldn't go into the final product because you would, your system would still have to deal with these bodiless headlines. That's right. We changed the, the coding of the system to recognize what was a headline and what was a body of a, of a story. And why blah, blah, blah? I think we used blah, blah, blah because there was no chance that would ever be in a news story. And it was something that we could catch, like XXX or, you know, some string of characters that if we needed to swap it out or pull it out of the data set, it was a, a unique and distinct set of characters that wouldn't affect anything else that was in the, in the data set. But it's also, it's also feasible that Reuters would quote somebody saying blah, blah, blah. I asked Stephen about that, and he said there were different phases of the project where they looked at other types of stories, but at this point, they were just looking at financial stories. And this phrase would never occur in a finance story. Reuters had really strict rules for those reporters. Like, you couldn't even say that stocks had, quote, plummeted. That was too editorialized. Reuters didn't actually ever publish anything that said blah, blah, blah. I think Mm -hmm. reporters would have gotten fired if they said that. And they couldn't do a phrase like no body text found because that could potentially trigger some of the rules that they were writing for categorization. No is a word that causes a lot of things to happen. And when no is paired up with other things, it certainly could create something going in the wrong direction. (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) you think if you wanted it to be unique, it would be like a random string of letters. It would be like QWERTY ASDF or something. Steven said they also didn't want to use anything that could potentially break something else. Like, it's possible that could have confused the system, which was relying on standard language dictionaries to parse the text. We just wanted to be very careful about not causing a problem, not creating a problem by trying to Mm -hmm. work around another problem. I think the thing also is now, regardless of why they put it in there, it's out there, it's already been spread to all of these places as this kind of freely shared data set. So it's just like, it's just in the mix now. I would never think that that data set would live for 35 years and we'd still be talking about it now. I decided it was time to call Jess. One problem I ran into on this story is that every time I contacted someone, they were like, why do you care about this? I mean, it was in 1987. I feel like they've they've moved on with their lives. Not that's not necessarily right, but uh, I haven't. So yeah, let's hear it. I explained why the dataset was created, who made it, how the Reuters feed relied on special control characters to separate stories, and then SGML was added later. I do love how 80s this whole story is. This is fantastic. And I told her about the blah blah blahs how they were a temporary fix that managed to stick around 30 years later. Well, honestly, if it was like a movie, it would be a very boring movie. But in real life, it's a quite exciting little venture uh, of <laughs> natural language processing development. Uh, that's awesome. That's more than I could have hoped for out of the blah, blah, blahs.
That's our show. Under Understood is Adrian Jeffries, Regina DeLay, Billy Disney, and me, John Lagomarsino. We'll be back with another episode next week. Um, until then, you can follow us on all the social media except for TikTok. We definitely will have a TikTok soon. Or consider joining us over on Patreon and you'll get a bonus episode on Thursday. You'll also be helping us pay for stuff like editing software and music. This episode came to us from a listener. Thank you, Jess. If you have a burning question that the internet can't answer, drop us a line at hello at underunderstood.com. Maybe we can find the answer. Thanks for listening. 